Hi y'all, you're listening to In the Corner Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. I don't know about how it is where you live, but it seems to me that in my microcosm of the world, most, if not all, the races get along, or at least have very little strife that's directly related to race. Now, that's not to say that we don't all have some sort of problems and conflicts. It's just that our trouble seeds are buried much deeper under the epidermis. All the same, it's difficult to escape the alarm call sounded throughout our various vehicles and media that claims that our society is on the verge of a racial bloodbath. So today, my guest and I, Chico Perriman, are going to talk about what are possibly clear and present dangers versus the manufactured dissent. In addition, I'm going to share a few of what I think are thought-provoking quotes regarding different aspects of race and the human condition. So we're going to talk about race today. And you had told me a story some time ago that I think is kind of relevant and may illustrate some of the the problems either real or imagined in our culture when it comes to race. The story that uh, comes to my mind that is, um, I think it's a pretty strong testament to the idea that sometimes we jump to race as a problem in human relationships when it's really not, is uh, I worked for a residential treatment program. There was a fight that happened in the schoolyard. These were with teenagers who were um, having significant challenges being in a regular uh, school setting. There was a fight broke out. It was between a black student and a white student. And the school was uh, integrated well. When we were having a staff meeting about the fight, somehow it spread throughout the school that it was a some sort of race conflict, that this was a fight against blacks and whites. Or Didn't you say that some words had been used in the middle of the fight? Yeah. Words had been used, uh, racial slurs had been used during the fight. So then uh, everyone said that it was, you know, the word got out that this was some sort of racial battle. So we were talking, staff, we were all talking about trying to get ready for the next day to sort of prevent this race war from happening in our school. And so everybody was sort of, we were doing our strategy to uh, stop the anti-race war. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh, but it's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what we were, that's what literally was going on because that's the way everybody was approaching it in the right. meeting. And so I said, what happened? I asked a very important question. I said, what happened? How did this all start? Because everybody was very fueled by the details of racial slurs being thrown out and it was a black and a white kid doing it. And so... Uh, one of the teachers said, it's not even a race war. She said they were fighting over a girl. It had something to do with some some t- regular teenage stuff, boy-girl stuff. And when they got into the fight, the racial, some racial slurs came out as a result. So everybody continued on with our plot to to stop this race war and I stopped everyone. I was a crisis intervention coordinator. I stopped everyone and I said, we can't make a plot for a race war when really that doesn't seem to exist one. I said, we, you know, that'll only fuel a race war if we do that. So let's talk about these two kids having a problem with this particular relationship 
with another female situation. And so everybody was pushing back on that, saying, you know, well, somebody called somebody um, the N-word, somebody called somebody some, some um, unacceptable word for white, and all these things were just flying back and forth. And I pointed out, I said, that's what people do when they're angry. People try to find the most insulting, the most hurtful, harmful, degrading thing they can say. It's no different than calling someone the, the bitch or, mm. or a saddle or something. Right. It's just that these kids grab that out of their bag. Uh, and, and once one of them did it, the other one did it. And it just, I said, but it's not like they said, hey, look at that white boy standing over there. I'm going to go kick his butt for being white right. or vice versa. Uh, or that black boy. I said, it was over a girl. And we have to keep it focused on that. So we won't start a race war, you know. Wow. What was the reaction to you saying that? Well, let me say this first. You don't always get the cream of the crop of educators in this field for these types of schools, okay? Right. You, you get people, uh, actually, uh, the people who are teachers, literally, they are, they're just one per class. Uh, who have the credentials to teach school, mm-hmm. and then everybody else is an entry-level person that was drug in, and, and they could have been like, what did you do? Well, I worked at a detention facility, and it's like, okay, come on in here, we, right. you know, and get a job. So there was pushback because uh, it was just a mindset thing, uh, but people who, who had experience in the field and who had background, um, trained, professionally trained, um, know, you know, the difference in having to try to get those people who, who want to say, oh, it's a black kid versus a white kid and racial slurs were thrown. You know, they see what the news would show and, and, and turn it into a race war. I think it's a lack of experience and a lack of understanding. Taking some sort of surface incident and not really d- digging down. It was a choice to decide whether you're going to look at what actually initiated the fight or whether you're going to look at how the mm-hmm. fight unfolded. Right. And, and so that's an education thing, experience thing. And for whatever reason, I don't, I don't want to judge or say that I know because I didn't poll anyone. They wanted to stick to the fact that racial slurs were thrown out. And so that made it racial. I think that people put a little piece of themselves, which is another thing that has to do with, you know, what their, your, your background and education right. is. You have to remain on the outside of a crisis if you're going to be any kind of uh, mental health care professional. You have to be able to try to be a, a, an objective observer mm-hmm. and watch this. You can't bring to the table when someone called you the N-word or someone right. said, you know, you, you can't try to, you can't mix those things. You've got to really look at the situation and try to strip it down to what human interactions have. People call each other terrible things when they're angry. You can't think of it. you got to also put it in context. And they were angry over a girl already. So trying to sort of say the worst thing they could say about each other in front of peers watching was what was going to happen. And the response, you don't even know really where the idea to call the other uh, it might not have originated with the, the two people. It may have been originated by someone outside the little group during the little fight. Someone said, "Punch that in," you know, you know, right there outside the circle, and then that that may have started. Who, no one knows. Right. But we do know this: we do know they started fighting over a girl, right. and it had nothing to do with race. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because he had married a Cushite, or as we say today, an Ethiopian. 
and the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And the Lord came down on a cloud and said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud was lifted, Miriam was leprous like snow. Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, don't punish us, because we have done foolish things and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when it comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, O God, please heal her, please. And the Lord said to Moses, Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. Numbers chapter 12. It does uh, illustrate the point that our society is very uh, easily excitable when it comes to issues of race, and that tends to be the default explanation for a lot of things, that America is inherently racist, for example. And I'll give you another example that is maybe illustrate what happens kind of daily that could have grown into something worse. So a uh, black female friend of mine felt like she was being talked down to by a, a white female at her workplace and thought, yeah, I think she may be racist, you know. Well, did some asking around and, and come to find out she talks down to everybody, mm-hmm. no matter what the race is. She's just oh. a very condescending person. Pleasant person. <laughs> yeah, so she's equal opportunity condescender. But you can see how had... My black female friend not investigated, she could have let it stew in her mind that that person's just a racist. I think it's very uh, harmful because, as you said, we don't acknowledge or we don't seem to understand that sometimes two people in different races just are having a conflict. And it's not about the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. It's about the problem that they're having. I try to ignore uh, what people's color is. And again, maybe this has something to do with training, maybe it has to do with education. I don't, I don't know. I feel safer and I feel better about the world when I look to try to figure out why are these two people fighting? Uh, are they fighting uh, over, over an issue or this, are they really fighting because they dislike each other's race? Right. Is that, you know, what's the deal here? I feel uh, like from a, being raised in a you know, Christian worldview that the way... You know, Judaism and Christianity see things that you know it's a fallen world. You know, human beings are flawed. They're gonna they're gonna tribe up, for example. They're gonna form alliances, no matter what is going on. So it could be over race, but it, it could be over economics. It could be over social standing. It could be any number of things. Mm-hmm. Because you know, in the jungle, you know, you go back to that base in the wilderness. Like it makes sense to tribe up. It makes sense to form alliances, us versus them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's strength in that, and that makes total sense when you're in the wild, but in society it becomes a problem because it ends up just making more problems and divisiveness. So I, I guess my point in saying that is when I hear about some kind of conflict, I'm, I'm a little bit like you. I always want to look a little deeper because I feel like the things that plague all of humanity, for example, greed, uh, jealousy, uh, like you say with the, the, the battle for you know, getting a mate, you, mm-hmm. you know, that's a big thing. And a lot of times those kind of issues are driving really the conflict more so than uh, color of skin. Not that they say that that doesn't exist, but... I used to say uh, to a friend of mine before, and I think now um, there's some research that backs it up, I think. 
I used to say to a friend of mine, I think people are more racially divided the, uh, the more economically stressed they are. I think that humanity, uh, people come together, at least in, in this country. Um, I don't know how this works worldwide. Maybe it's based on religion. Maybe it's based on region. I don't know. Maybe it's based on some village stuff. But I think in this country, the higher up you are on uh, the uh, income status wrong, the higher up you are, the less race issues appear to manifest uh, for some reason. And I think that uh, when people are poor and, and, and even worse, when they are impoverished, I think it's just the mindset to ask themselves, uh, why is this happening to me? Where's the, where's the blame? Where's the, where's the reason for this? And, and it's easy to understand how minorities can, can blame people of the majority, whether they be white or in another country, somebody, some other majority who has most of the money and most of the power and all that kind of stuff. I think it's just human condition to, 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 to do that. You know, if you're, you're here poor, it doesn't matter what race you are, and most of the people who are wealthy are of the majority, regardless of what race they are. It just makes sense to mm-hmm. think sort of put that together and say, okay. Well, 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 let me challenge that. I think that's probably true here, but maybe there's been some anomalies. I know there's a uh, historian, political writer, Dr. Thomas Sowell, and he's big on statistics. And he points out how in, in certain countries, the minority actually rule, like they're the racial minority, they're not even, the, they don't even belong there, they're immigrants. But because of their culture, they've become dominant. Now, they are generally hated, not only because they're foreigners who come in and they're running circles around the native population. And, of course, there's the jealousy and the envy, you know. I think it kind of just depends on the situation. Of course, this is where xenophobia comes from. You're like, hey, that's not fair. I'm a native, and how come I'm not up on the top of the scale? You know, so yeah. that happens as well. Yeah. You say they ruled, meaning they have more money, they have more power. In the, yeah. yeah. That's why I said I, I wasn't sure if it existed all over yeah. the world. I, I think yeah. it exists here, but... But I'm not so sure. But then again, you look at uh, the problems between, for example, Asians and African Americans. You know that that's a pretty well known really? tension. Oh yeah, yeah. Especially you got in California. Shout out to my Korean friends that are listening. Uh, people forget the the Rodney King riots. Uh, you know, most of the businesses, what I remember, were targeted were Asian owned businesses, mostly gas stations and you know convenience stores, because they were in black neighborhoods. You know, they were resented by the local population, you know, for being successful in their own neighborhood. I didn't know that, and they probably weren't treated very well because there's again no getting around that there are some racism on both parts, both races against each other. Actually, I think I did see a special uh, somewhere about that. Yeah, I actually did. I think I did. <music> Everyone has asked the question, what shall we do with a Negro? I've had but one answer from the beginning. Do nothing with us. Your doing with us has already played the mischief with us. If the apples will not remain on the tree of their own strength, if they are worm-eaten at the core, if they are early ripe and disposed to fall, let them fall. I am not for tying or fastening them on the tree in any way except by nature's plan. And if they will not stay there, let them fall. And if the Negro cannot stand on his own legs, let him fall also. All I ask is, give him a chance to stand on his own legs. Let him alone. If you see him on his way to school, let him alone. 
don't disturb him. If you see him going to the dinner table at a hotel, let him go. If you see him going to the ballot box, let him alone. Don't disturb him. If you see him going to the workshop, just let him alone. Your interference is doing him a positive injury. If you will only untie his hands and give him a chance, I think you will live. He will work as readily for himself as the white man. Frederick Douglass. I think we need to do more how sensitive we are and how quick we are to label things. Part of our challenge, uh, part of our mission, even though we might not be here yet, is to, to take a look at how we drag color and people's race into all conflicts, uh, or a lot of conflicts, it's in some cases where it only becomes the issue after the fact. I think we need to do more to try to avoid doing that. I think we need to do more to, um, to make sure that we acknowledge that you know there's, there's conflict and, and there's disagreement. There are normal, hopefully safe and healthy battles between two people of a different color. I also think that we have to also stop uh, giving preferential passes to any race just because of some historical. I think as long as we continue to acknowledge history in a way that we give passes to inappropriate behavior because I, I don't even get that really when I think hear myself saying this, I think, well, um, since that race was treated so badly back in the 1800s or the early 1900s, then it's kind of okay for them to, somebody here in, you know, 2019 to say some of those things because their ancestors were, were mistreated. No, no, it's not okay. I don't care. You know, I don't even care if it was your grandmother and she was in the mid-1900s. You, you you know, if it's not okay to uh, say uh, racially insensitive things to someone, then it's just not okay. I think that's where we need to get. Mm-hmm. I don't know how, how to get there, but I think there's an imbalance that's problematic. And I tell people all the time, if you feel like, and I'm not trying to judge one way or the other, I'm not trying to be the referee. I'm just saying, if you feel like the N-word, and I'm going to say it, if you feel like nigger is a problem, then redneck is a problem too, period. Cracker's a problem. If, you know, monkey's a problem, it's all a problem. Right. You know, don't say, you know, don't don't admonish someone for saying the N-word and then turn right back around and call people rednecks or, or you know, white trash or any of these things mm-hmm. or Jap or, uh, you know, yeah. all of it is a problem. <laughs> right. Well, that's true. We don't equivocate it, and we end up having groups that have special rights, which, you know, time and time again, historically, when one group has been protected, given protections that other groups don't have, even if it means well, it ends up either hurting that group or make causes so much more resentment, they end up in a worse state later on in history. Right. And there's the, uh, what they call it, the uh, the soft bigotry of low expectations. Have you heard that phrase before? I haven't, but I like it. I, I, I think I understand what you mean. Yeah, I, I can't remember. Some politician had used that, and I, I believe they were talking about minorities. We don't want it to, especially maybe like uh, 
like the quotas and affirmative action and things of that nature where you mm-hmm. know, people are well-meaning when they try to put those programs together, but they end up holding certain races to a certain standard, a lower standard. Mm-hmm. It's almost affirming the racist point of view that they can't compete or they, they're not as good. Mm-hmm. I agree with... Um that's just those are forms of reparations um, and I, I agree with them the problem is is that you still need to keep the standards in place that um, make sure that these reparations are distributed appropriately I, I think that if you just say we're going to sort of try to make up for somebody's skin color indiscriminately you've got problems uh, I think that you are, are make up for the things that we did to your race. I think within that and within those reparations, you you say, okay, these resources are set aside for people of that race or that category, but you still got to earn them. You still got to be qualified. You still got to meet whatever standards necessary to to get this this thing, whether it be college, you know, entry into college, or whether it be Whatever it is. I don't know. I just think that those types of things, they, I think they're just issued poorly. Since I wash myself of race pride and repudiate race solidarity, by the same token, I turn my back on the past. I see no reason to keep my eyes fixed on the dark years of slavery and the Reconstruction. I am three generations removed from it and therefore have no experience of the thing. From what I can learn, it was sad. No doubt America would have been better off if it had never been. But it was, and there's no use in beating around the bush. Still, there seems to me to be nothing but futility in gazing backward over my shoulder and bucking the grave of some white man who has been dead too long to talk about. Neither do I see any use in buttonholing his grandson about it. The old man probably did cut some capers back there, and I'll bet you anything my old folks didn't like it. But the old man is dead. My old folks are dead. Let them wrestle all over hell about it if they want to. That is their business. The present is upon me, and that white man's grandchildren as well. I have business with the grandson as of today. I want to get on with the business at hand. Since I cannot pry loose the clutching hand of time, I will settle for some influence on the present. It is ridiculous for me to make out that I'm old black Joe and waste my time rehashing his problems. That would be just as ridiculous as it would be for the Jews to hang around the pyramids trying to get a word with the old pharaohs, or for the English to be billing the Duke of Normandy the first of every month. Zora Neale Hurston Something you had said earlier about wanting to look, go, basically go to the quantum of, of a lot of specific problems and not just assume that it's race. There are uh, folks, and generally they're in charge of organizations that are on the news, and really their role is their awareness groups, and a lot of, let's just be honest, if they're in the forefront in the news, they get funding from, you know, uh, rich people, Hollywood, or grants. They're motivated to keep these issues alive. But they would say, I would wager, that you're just blind, that you're feeding into the racist system that is in place. So you should not question these things. It's just racism is built into the system, and we've got to dismantle it and look at it for what it is. You're just making excuses. 
And I would say that none of my argument has anything to do with rejecting racism itself. That's, that's all I would say. I would say my argument isn't about racism. My argument is about trying to uh, hang the veil of racism on things that aren't a racist problem. How can anybody disagree with that? Well, you're not nuanced enough. <laughs> you're not sophisticated. That's what they would say. I'm not, I don't think that's, of course. But Okay, that, okay so you, you, take that, you take the same example and you see a husband and wife fighting over credit card bills or something that went on with the kids and just hang the veil of gender disparities over it. That's not going to be helpful to that relationship, mm-hmm. is it, to that marriage? Because there's not anything they can do about that. Right. They can't overcome being male versus female. That right there, uh, to me, uh, is a bigger problem because it creates a certain level of hopelessness to the repair of those relationships. The same thing would happen in races. You know, if it's a black and white thing only, no one's going to unwhite or unblack. You've got to focus on how to help people understand that being black and being white is not a problem it, it, it in and of itself is should not be the problem and so when it's not a problem certainly jump on that certainly highlight that that's actually not the problem here right my wife and i she's black of course and uh we laugh about certain things that happen in our marriage and like maybe i have fixed dinner and i've you know she said you know fix me a plate and so i put it out and maybe i gave her less food and <laughs> she could say Man, this guy's racist. He didn't give me exactly. You know, she could. If we played that game yeah, and saw exactly. uh, you know a demon under every rock and tree, exactly. <laughs> exactly. This is a white man trying to hold me down, right? Or, right. Or <laughs> trying to not, starve me to try death. Not to feed me. Yeah, I'll tell you one of the. the I have friends from from all kinds of background, and 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 I love them all, and they all bring something uh, interesting and important to my life. Uh, but I have a friend who is a physician at Vanderbilt. They, actually, he's a department head uh, in the uh, neurology department. One day he called me up. I, mean, I think we were in college. He called me up and, was, and he said, uh, Chico, I have a joke to tell you. He said, it's horribly racist. <laughs> but I really, he said, but I, I said I'm so embarrassed. I, I felt so guilty because I laughed when I heard this joke. Is I he started, white or black? Or? Uh, he's white, white uh-huh. uh, but it's fa- he, he's white. His uh, family, his mother is actually from Italy, uh, but, he's, but they were born here, and right. so he's white American. Charming, one of the most incredible families that anyone will ever know. Charismatic, beautiful, wonderful, mm-hmm. community-oriented people. He said, Chico, I have a joke I want to tell you. He said, it's horribly racist. He said, but I, I started laughing. And if you know this guy, he's, if you ever met him, he's so innocent and so kind-hearted that for him to call me and tell me that he wants to tell me a racist joke that in and of itself was enough of a treat (laughs) to make me laugh on the phone i was already laughing before he told me the joke because it was him (laughs) telling me that Uh and i knew how absolutely tortured he was that he laughed because i know him Uh and he's like and i felt so guilty he says, I want to tell you this joke, though, because if you laugh, then I'll understand, you know, hey, okay, this really is a funny joke. Uh-huh. And, you know, I can give myself a break. And I said, lay it on me, Michael. I said, but, I said, but before you do it, if you tell me one, I get to tell you one. Okay. And he goes, oh, right, that's great. <laughs> so he was really excited. He was happy about that. Right. He was like, okay. And so his joke was, uh, why do uh, black mothers put Velcro on the ceiling? 
And, uh, and I said, I don't know, why? And he said to stop the kids from jumping on the bed. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> the laughing you hear is neither of us, for the record. We, we have an audience. I'm totally, I'm totally laughing. Yeah. And so I cracked up. <laughs> I'm sorry, that is funny. Yeah. That is just a funny joke. Yeah. And so, I, so we both laughed on the phone. He said, I feel a little bit better because you're laughing. And he knows I used to have an afro, uh, uh, or at least just wild curly hair when I was young. So we laughed about that. And I said, okay, well, let me tell mine. And uh, and his background is Italian, so I had to pull one out of my little arsenal that specifically (laughs) dealt with Italian Italian people. And so I said, said, so Michael, I said, uh, why do Italian men grow mustaches? And he goes, I don't know. And I said, so they could look like their mothers. <laughs> oh, man. We're in so much trouble now. Uh, and he laughed. Yeah. And we both laughed and laughed. But I think there's a bigger, more important point there. And that is, we're two people of a different race, uh, yeah, yes, we, we do have history with each other and we have a history of respect and love and I used to spend the night at his house and go places with his family and, and all of this and we're still in touch even now, um, but um, we understood in that moment we were joking, we were much younger, he was not a physician at this point, so we were, at a, we were younger at a time where it was pretty, it was risky to mm-hmm. even laugh and share those types of jokes. But what we were establishing is that our relationship was strong enough. Our, our relationship can transcend, and, and it was strong enough to be able to share those kinds of jokes. He shared an actual joke to me that would have been offensive if I had uh, just sort of put that veil of racism mm-hmm. over it mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and vice versa, but, but we didn't. And I picked a particularly harsh one simply because I, I wanted to... Uh, I wanted to experience, I wanted to take the risk and know that we could, you know, go there with one another. Uh, It's not a thing. And I've had other friends that that we can joke and and, and tell, and they are, they're they're, uh, a different race, and we can joke. I have friends who will send me jokes about their own race Mm -hmm. and things like that. I was about to say the, the most racist jokes I've ever heard are mostly been from black people about themselves. Yeah. And that's sometimes I would never repeat. Yeah. Uh, especially on recording, but back to your point of, well, it's okay for certain groups to use racial slurs, but it's not okay for other groups to use them, or it's okay for a black person to, for example, tell a, a joke against the, his own race, mm-hmm. and then if a person of another race does the same thing, exactly. and vice versa, because you know it, it's not cool for a black person to, to joke about Asians or whatever. It, it seems kind of petty if you really think about it. You think like, well, why not? Yeah. You know, if if it's wrong, it's wrong, or if it's if it's funny, it's funny. Being nuanced is makes life complicated, and it creates problems innately. If we simplify, if we make our society more simple, and just say the N word is a bad word, doesn't matter what color you are, doesn't matter what context you use it in, it's not a nice word, it's not an appropriate word. Or if we say it's not a word that is benign, it doesn't really matter. Then it doesn't really matter across the board. I think as long as we have conditions on these types of things in our society, then we, we keep them alive. Mm-hmm. We give them power. Mm-hmm. We give them energy. Take the power away from them. I remember I was working for a, a school with uh, 
I don't know why this uh, this story came to my mind, but but this sort of this sort of is a, a powerful point to me for some reason. It, it it stuck in my mind for a while, and I told people about it. But we, were, you know, in the in this program that I work with, these these kids were extremely violent. Sometimes we had to hold them um, when they were trying to fight, or they're trying to run out of the building, or they were trying to attack another staff member. And we were holding this one kid who was trying to fight. He had already been in a fight, and then he was trying to leave the building, and we grabbed him, and he escalated in a physical way enough to where two staff had to hold him. Everyone's been trained and everything. But anyway, the, the real story is that he was lying on the floor, and he was just being held, you know, just to hold him until he calms down. We were holding him, and he was a, uh, a, a white kid, and he was yelling and screaming and cussing and fuck you, and leave me alone, and stop it, and I'm going to kill that MF, and, you know, and he's saying all this stuff, and then he says, uh, let me go, y'all just trying to hold a nigga down. He's a white guy. He's a white kid. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I was holding his legs, I was just kind of hovering over his legs, and, uh, and I couldn't almost hold him when he said that, I just... You know, and you're not supposed to be holding a kid uh, who's having a crisis if you are laughing or, you know. And I had to tap out with someone because I couldn't pull it together with him saying that. Uh, I thought it was so hilarious. And so they had to, like, tap me out and say, you need to go and, like, take a break because, you know, you're, like, laughing. But he meant it. And, uh, and I thought that was really interesting that he was saying that. It made me wonder, I never asked him about it, I don't know if it would have been appropriate to ask him about it, but it made me wonder if for him, nigger meant oppression, just simply oppression, sure. and that's it. Had nothing to do with skin color. Hadn't, he hadn't, in his mind, connected that it was a race or a color issue. Right. It was just the act of oppression, right. which... Uh, that's an important designation. That's an important difference. Yeah. Racism is not dead, but it is on life support, kept alive by politicians, race hustlers, and people who get a sense of superiority by denouncing others as racist. Dr. Thomas Sowell. I don't know if I heard you right or wrong, but one time you had said to me that, of course, it would be better for our society if all the races and all the different groups that are divided, you know, got along. But there is a certain amount of benefit to some people about controlling the population through division. Now, maybe you didn't say it quite like that. I'm not sure, but can you expound, or do you remember what you said? Yeah, I, I don't. I don't remember what I said, but. But I can tell you this. I mean, I, I agree with that, that, that comment because I think that there's lots of ways to divide up our society in groups. What we do is we divide based on race. We divide based on religious beliefs. We divide based on, like, regions sometimes. We divide based on a lot of things, and we definitely divide based on gender and, and sexual preference. But, but one of the things that I think... Is, is that we, we, we try to keep on the, on the down low is a division that is economics based in class. Um, we do talk about the 1%, but 
But I think people are more divided uh, based on, on money and opportunity than anything else. That's really at the core. I, and I think that anything else, whether it be race or religious beliefs, I think it's a distraction. I think it's to keep it off of the, the real talk. And the real talk is uh, whether people have the opportunity to get their basic needs met, whether they have the opportunity to, um, to have opportunities to get a good education, to have job opportunities, to have uh, the opportunity to do a little extra other than work seven days a week. Also, money is made off of those, uh, those separation. Money is made out of, from fear. Money is made from believing, from making these groups compete, just like money is made from football games from two separate teams. It's a, it, it, there's really very little difference to, in my mind. As long as the world believes that we have all these problems based on separation of groups, uh, then, then we don't have time to focus on the fact that maybe, uh, maybe the, the issue has to do with those in power and those with money versus those who aren't. Right. I kind of think, again, based on the population that I work with, that I'll go ahead and say it. I think it's very difficult to go hungry in America, for example. There is so much available. In fact, they have excess, mm-hmm. and sometimes they have to throw it away. And I see a lot of obesity in, the, again, these folks, they don't uh, work. They, some claim they have disabilities. Most, I would tell you, are making us up. As far as basic needs, we've done really well, I think, in this country. And there's some other countries, too, that you know, it's very difficult to not go without even medical care. I mean, there's, there's clinics set up. They're, they're funded by the, the federal mm-hmm. government. And they don't turn anybody away, even people that won't even pay the basic little copay that they're supposed to pay. Mm-hmm. And they never turn them away. So... Sometimes I wonder when these groups, these political groups that they're supposed to be shedding light on real problems, but sometimes I feel like they're focusing on microscope on a problem that may not even be there. I feel like it's almost like it's gotten more intense because the, the, really their role is negated. There's no need for them anymore. You know, it's just like it reminds me a little bit with the abolitionist movement. You know, once the Civil War was over and everybody was freed, they did, there was no reason for them to exist anymore, and they did shut their doors. Now, most of those folks did go into other things that needed to be done, mm-hmm. needed to be corrected in society. You know, ranging from uh, civil rights, of course, uh, to they thought get, getting rid of alcohol would make society better. You know, just different causes. You know, sure. so I feel like those people always need something to do, and so. I, I wish if anybody listening to this, I would say, hey, go do something else. Like you can, There's plenty of ways to help people. Mm-hmm. But I feel like, and I'm just rambling here, that uh, really the need is, so for example, with the children that I work with, they need real adults in their life. Mm-hmm. Adults that will do stuff with them and, and don't just treat them as a distraction right. or a check. The thing is, that's, that's a whole lot more difficult to do because it's very involved. You have to make a commitment. Uh, it's a lot easier just to do fundraisers or to get in front of a camera and say that, that America's, you know, racist. You know what I'm saying? I feel like it requires more work that uh, a lot of people just aren't willing to do. And I can't say that I'm any better. I, I, I attempt to in, in, in my job to help a little bit and try to be a good role model. But So you feel like these groups that have the money or the power, you feel like they're the ones that can do more? Than what they're doing, I guess. 
I'm thinking more like groups like Black Lives Matter, for example. I got you. You know, for example, it's been said a, a jillion times, but if they were really concerned about black lives, it would seem like their their main target would be like drug dealers, since you know black and black crime is actually worse. For example, but they tend to surgically extract certain incidences that yeah. are much more you. combustible, and yeah. it makes one wonder: Are they really what they say they are? Fatherlessness. If Black Lives Matter really cared, they would like target that for example or if not shaming the fathers that don't aren't involved they themselves like forming like mentor programs and maybe they do i'm just totally agree with totally you. not aware of it I, t- I totally agree with you I, I i something you and i uh, may have talked about before and i know I, i've talked about it with several of my friends and some of them they really sort of you know connect with the idea mm-hmm. and some of them are against it because they they, they, they don't. Jordan Peterson, uh, if I may speak, and that I actually listened to him, he said that most of the time when people talk, they are giving, um, they are giving talks. He says is there's like one doctrine that's just being spread all over. There's only a few doctrines that we have. People generally don't give talking points that they themselves are connected with. Right. They are just sharing information that someone else has given them, and they're just echoing it. Right. It's, it's not interesting. It's not different. It's not... It, it, it's, not it's not even based on experience. Yeah, it's yeah. not based It's just <laughs> not giving any information, right. anything new. It's very predictable. And the way... His belief is that the way we're going to get better as, as a world is everyone really start thinking from their own brain and start trying to really analyze the problem because that's where you're going to get the creativity. That's where you're going to get the innovation. That's where you're going to get the real, uh, true, new perspectives is when people start sort of really talking about from their heart. So in that situation, that sort of goes to my point, in which is they are, um, it's a group probably um, that evolved from fear. Yes, things are happening um, but I think some of the main issues are, are, are being ignored. Uh, they say Black Lives Matter. I think that, that, that initiative was born out of the belief or out of the examples that show that black people are targeted more mm-hmm. uh, in the, uh, by, by policemen and people who are supposed to be protecting right. um, folks. And so I think they got to keep their focus on discrimination and inequities based on race from this bigger perspective. I don't think uh, sort of looking at this police department or that particular precinct is going to really get mm-hmm. to the problem. And I think it'll. I think it's just doing what, again, the people in power and people who have money mm-hmm. wants, want to have happen with these kinds of groups is keep a narrow and very small focus as to what you're, what you're doing. Uh, don't look at. Don't look up here. Don't look. Oh, don't, sure. Don't 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 look at where the real problem is. Just go after that precinct and talk uh-huh. about how they, how they they're 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 prejudiced over in that precinct. Precinct. Uh-huh. That's okay. That'll help feed your cause and get some of that energy out. Right. Often, what happens is that groups. It doesn't matter what group it is. It could be black. It could be poor. Uh, but I, I think this is particularly true for race. Uh, I think this is critical for races. I don't think black, white, 
Asian, doesn't matter. I don't think that you can truly tell where the root of problems for those particular groups are until you fix the problems in the group. I, I, I just, yeah. I, I don't think you can do it. I don't think it'll ever happen. And I have said this to people. I say, it's like, look at the world. I look at everything from like a social work sort of behavioral health perspective. I worked for years with uh, kids, black, white, all, all races, coming into our program. And the programs were good. I worked at, I worked at a program that was nationally uh, known for the work that they did to help kids at risk uh, become less of a risk and even become successful. And I can point to some success stories, but here's the thing. You take that kid out of that house, you know, and so the metaphor of that house, that home that they lived in, is there is that that that, that is the, the black race, their home. That mm-hmm. is their that's their family. And you take a, 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 a black person out of the family for a minute and you give them an education, you give them a college education, you do all this stuff and give them money and then you send them back. Uh, what's going to happen is that all the other folks in that family are going to, they're not going to be very supportive of their growth and they are not going to help them use that growth to uh, make the family better. What they're going to do is they're going to try to take what they can from it or they're going to uh, shun them or, or or cast them out as leaving the family. Mm-hmm. You know, however you want to, and I and I say you can't you and you can't tell you can't tell you can pour, you can pour money. I said the problem is pour money. You give them money, 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 but then the money's going to be spent. Uh, it's like Eckhart Tolle said. Uh, people win the lottery all the time, and they don't. Nothing ha- changes for them, and many of them lo- just lose the money. That's all they do. Doesn't statistically, they they look at some of these lottery winners, and they actually are worse off. Like that, two years later, as, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, because he said you do the same unhealthy behaviors in a more glamorous setting. All right. That's all that happens for for the time that the money lasts, and that's what's going on with this situation. Um, until we get serious about helping. And that's what you're pointing to. Uh, it's not going to matter. It's just going to be money uh, going in, and and you know, in some cases, it's going to land in the right place and it's going to do good. But yeah, I think, especially, I always talk about when I was younger, what an idiot I was, and I used to, like you say, re- just repeat stuff I had heard. I think in my mind, I think I was trying to project I'm a good person. You know, yeah, everybody. But, yeah, that's what everybody. Does. But in essence, I didn't do anything. Yeah. You know, I never acted on those words. And I think once I started to get involved in social work and, and other kind of things, I started to realize, like, man, it, the reality is completely different than these um, proclamations that we keep making about what the problems are. And even when you get in those situations, you say, okay, well, okay, clearly this is the problem, so we need to fix this. And then you get in trouble mm-hmm. because it doesn't fit the narrative or... Somebody has written a book on it, and they've based their whole career on this theory that kind of find out isn't true or has got holes in it at best. And you get all this pushback, and then you then you burn out and you quit. There's just a lot of unhealthy perspectives and a lot of unhealthy ways to try to cultivate and build family. Um, there's a lot of good too, but there's some pretty unhealthy things that go on. Um, uh, in the black community that needs to just stop. And until, I, until those things get fixed, 
uh, I think that this is just a treadmill situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and those things can't be fixed by outsiders and they can't be fixed by people coming in and, and, and pouring money into it. Uh, it'll, only, it'll only be a distraction. If you if you just if someone just said, well, it, okay it keeps it alive too it's like it's like it perpetuates yeah preserves it well well yeah the but the biggest thing is that it doesn't it, it doesn't get to the problem what it does is it, it promotes uh, uh, ignoring the problem let's just put a billion dollars three billion ten billion dream big however much you want mm-hmm. and all you'll have and I know this because in my own family. There's several examples where some family unit within my own family got uh, either a windfall or they got or someone something happened and that the economic part of it went away. The the economic challenges went away. But now they're in nicer homes, bigger homes, and nothing has changed except the home. Mm -hmm. You know, you've just gone from a small home where you didn't have enough room and maybe you didn't have all the food that you wanted to a house where you have all the food you want a lot of room with the same problems if you'd like to stew more on the subject of race you might check out in the corner back by the woodpile 185 where my guest, Kalanji McClellan, talks history and ideology found in the lyrics of hip-hop tracks. Or if you're just taken by the voice of today's guest, give 159 a listen, where Mr. Perryman and I talk about the issues of gender, domestic violence, and the Me Too movement. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. (laughs) 